Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, reservations are starting to overtake walk-ins at many Canadian restaurants, as many of us flock back to dining out. But it turns out there's a downside, as no-shows are also a headache for the industry. We take a closer look at how Russian propaganda continues to weave a different reality about the war in Ukraine, and why it is still proving successful for a domestic audience. We find out why the Ukrainian president is voicing his anger at Canada tonight over a decision to return a piece of equipment to Russia's Gazprom via Germany, despite sanctions in place by Canada that would prohibit the move. But first, following Friday's massive network outage at Rogers, we look at how much we know about what went wrong, what the industry minister had to say in a call today with CEOs of all major Canadian telecoms, and why this fiasco could provide a perfect opportunity to reboot our thinking about Canada's digital infrastructure. Well, speaking of something that could be out of a thriller, we're still waiting to learn exactly what happened at Rogers on Friday. The fallout continued today from that network-wide collapse uh, that down service for millions of its wireless and internet customers for upwards of 15 hours on Friday. The federal industry minister held emergency calls today, or a call, with the CEOs of Rogers and other major Canadian telecom companies. Francois-Philippe Champagne has given them 60 days to come up with a deal to improve their network reliability, including on emergency roaming. You remember 911 went down for some Rogers customers. Mutual assistance during outages. I don't think that would have helped, but still. And an emergency communication protocol to better inform us, customers and authorities, during those kinds of systems failures. Well, joining me now from Toronto is Ritesh Kotak. He's a cybersecurity and technology analyst. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. So does the mystery continue? Do we know what happened on Friday to cause such an unbelievable collapse of their system? Well, we know what we're told, right? And kind of what we've been told is is, is actually very minimal. So a software or hardware update gone gone horribly wrong. We know that it was in the backbone um, network. So kind of the the brains of, of Rogers. So you have this critical infrastructure hubs switches routers all the type of all those types of equipment and that is something that connects all their services together and gets them out to consumers well something in that system went horribly wrong when there was some sort of regular maintenance or or update that ended up having a ripple effect on their entire infrastructure bringing millions of canadians offline from coast to coast to coast that's what we know so far I would. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I won't make assumptions. But anytime one of these things happens, it's like a cascading problem. Many things go wrong. But it does beg the question: If you're Rogers, how do you not have a plan or a redundancy in place so that that doesn't happen? I think what's mind-boggling here is the fact that this is not the first time that this has happened. Back in April 2021, a lot of people might remember that Rogers suffered a similar outage. So. How do you not have a plan? I think that is one thing that's going to be investigated. That's one thing that is, uh, that's a question on the minds of many, of many Canadians is what type of backup plan did you have? What type of redundancies did you build in? What type of business continuity uh, plans were in place? Usually when you do these types of updates, there is a rollover plan. If something goes wrong, there's people on standby. So you can essentially stop the bleeding and, and roll it back and get connectivity again. Why, why did all that fail and keep Canadians offline? Some Canadians are still offline. So I think that's going to be one of those big questions. And, and we're all wondering that, uh, what's the answer to that question? 
Do you think it's something we'll find out? I hope so. Um, it comes down to what are the next steps. So if there is a investigation, I think you know I think this would fall under the CRTC. But there's calls for a parliamentary um, committee to to look at this. So if if that happens, those are public. Um, people will be able to um, to see kind of uh, what what happened. There'll probably be some sort of report done. But again, these things take time, and I think. Uh, Given the fact that we're all connected, we rely on this type of technology. It wasn't just our phones that went down. There was emergency services were impacted. Court services were impacted. Government was impacted. Everyone was impacted. We couldn't even pay for our coffee. So um, I think that th- we want a solution sooner than later, and we want to hold somebody accountable. Ritesh, were you surprised at just how widespread and how impactful uh, the outage was, just how much went down? I was surprised. Um, here's the thing. It's one company that essentially, if you turn off the lights, it, the, the ripple effect throughout the economy, individuals and also at a macroeconomic level, uh, again, just as I mentioned earlier, payments. Uh, I heard about court dates that were getting adjourned, uh, people that weren't able to uh, video conference with their doctors, uh, health-related uh, ish- um, related services were impacted. So, it has this huge ripple effect and it really gets you thinking that, you know, we've been talking about having contingency plans, not just a plan A, but a plan B and a plan C. And especially with a lot of these big organizations, why did they not have that? Why were they so reliant on one, to, on, on one provider and didn't build out those redundancies? Uh, it wouldn't have, you know, it still would have created issues, but at least it, the impact wouldn't be as severe as it was. I noticed that Interact today said they were looking for another partner as well so that this wouldn't happen to them again. Do you have any better understanding of what happened to 911? Because my understanding was that that was, if anything, 911 calls were meant to be exempt from any collapse of the system. Yeah, so I don't know exactly what happened. I think this is one of the things that the CRTC, which it's their mandate, is going to be is going to be investigating. But um Again, is it the fact that individual phones weren't connecting? Now, there are a lot of there are some fail safes in in place. Uh, even if you don't have connectivity, you should still be able to make a nine one one call. But there are uh, home phones, for example, um, that had no dial tone. Um, I know businesses that didn't have a dial tone as well, so they weren't able to reach out. I think the older days, uh, the, we had phones using copper lines. Well, now even the phones are digital using the internet. So. This has raised a lot of questions around, okay, if, there is, if, if things do go off, um, how are we going to be able to communicate during an emergency? And that's one of the three things that the minister has tasked these big, these big ISP providers with, saying, okay, what are, you go- what are you going to do when the lights get turned off? Hey, Ritesh, I wanted to, uh, let's talk about, about what was proposed today and whether it'll make a difference. We'll take a quick break and come back with that. Two days worth of credit. This, 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 this guy is living on... La La Land or something. My, I have a Rogers business account. Rogers wow. literally coerced me. Well, I shouldn't say coerced. They convinced me that I should go electronic with my billing and my dispatch. So my guys get dispatched by tablet. So everything is done electronically. I couldn't contact my customers, couldn't contact my guys. So nobody could have worked on Friday. 
That's what one small business owner told Jeff MacArthur today on 640 Toronto. My guest this half hour is Ritesh Kotak. He's a cyber security and technology analyst in Toronto. Um, so the minister came out today with some pretty urgent demands, 60 days for telecoms to come up with a plan on emergency roaming, mutual assistance during outages and emergency communication protocols to better inform us and uh, presumably the authorities. Uh I don't imagine the the sort of mutual assistance would have helped much on on Friday. Are, are all those good ideas? Do you think, Ritesh? I think that it, I think it's a start. I think when you start to dissect it, especially like the emergency roaming. So, um, what's the best? Way, probably the best way to think about this is uh, if you have a generator in your house, right? The power gets cut, and then all of a sudden, boom! The generator kicks in, and you have some sort of continuity. Well. We got to think about the same way when it comes to these to these telcos. Is do we have the ability to essentially turn on that generator and have some sort of backup backup plan if one if one goes down? And I think that in order in order to achieve that, you do need mutual assistance and emergency roaming. And especially with the comms portal, well, just Rogers customers weren't able to communicate. So how do you communicate um, to your customers um, when this type of stuff? When this type of stuff happens, so I think this—it's—it's it's a start. It's definitely not everything that we were hoping for. I think we were hoping for a little bit more stronger language, and and there were some other items such as compensation and stuff like that. But uh, it is a start. Yeah, the compensation one is is an odd one because there is, of course, Rogers. Every time anybody who signs up with them, there's a contract, and in the contract, their 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 liability is relatively uh, minimal, I believe. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Now there's there's two types of contracts, right? You got enterprise contracts where there may be minimum service uh, level agreements. So if you know that's the whole ninety nine point nine percent of the time we're up. Well, it, that that clearly wasn't the case. So there might be additional compensation for enterprise clients, but everyday individuals. Um, well, what does it mean? I I saw this uh, this great tweet that was put out, and uh, they kind of broke it down. They said, well, if you're going to give compensation based on the average bill for two days, that works up to $3.80. So I think if we got $3.80 uh, deducted from our bill, the average person will be extremely upset. So what does what what does compensation look like and what do we need? Do we need a statutory compensation method when it comes to reimbursing customers? I kind of relate this to the airline industry around the world. and. There's like passenger bill of rights and, and depending on the country, there's uh, if your flight gets delayed or canceled, there's set compensation that you're entitled to. Um, maybe we've got to look at that when it comes to telecommunications. And the mention of the uh, of the communication protocols, obviously there was a, a belief within government and I think within a lot of other people that this wasn't communicated very well at the beginning at least, that it took them an awfully long time to start telling people why it is their phones weren't working. I mean, I guess if you had a Rogers phone, you weren't going to find out quickly anyway. But uh, nonetheless, it did take them a while to sort of say, wait, we have a big problem here. Absolutely. And I think the, the, the transparency element and also the frequency of of updates or the, or the, I guess the lack of frequency of updates is what really frustrated individuals. Um, I think when this stuff happens, the, the step one is, okay, when, when am I expected to get back online? I think the average person wanted to know, when is my phone going to turn on? When am I going to be able to access the internet? You know, that's step one. And then step two is what happened? Um, and when you don't do that, people fill in the gaps and they think always worst case, worst case scenario. And it's, not the right thing to do. So clearly there was a, a colossal communication 
failure in some cases, and it'll be interesting to see um, what what happens. And, and again, this wasn't the first time this has happened before, so you would think that they would at least have some sort of robust communication plan in place, which they didn't. Yeah, I mean, I, I worked in that field for a while. You're, you're supposed to have your crisis communication plan ready to go, not not sort of ready, to, not ready to test on the day of a major crisis like that. What do you think the big lesson is here? Then, uh, ultimately, Ritesh, when 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 we look back at Friday, what needs to be learned from what happened? So, I, I think one of the key things is, is for industry, for individuals, is don't put all your eggs in one basket. Um, there is a sense of convenience, um, but on the flip side, when one thing goes wrong, there's a ripple effect. So you want to think about contingencies. You want to have those backup plans. Uh, if you're a business, think about are there ways of going paper-based or having some sort of additional communication protocol in, in, in place. So, you know, a lot of small businesses I spoke to said, well, one thing that they're going to do is they're going to diversify their their services or are going to have backup systems. So if they're using one ISP, they're going to get a backup ISP as well, kind of that generator idea. So it's going to be interesting to see, but I think the big takeaway here is don't put your eggs in one basket. Yeah, but it's but they they encourage you to obviously, right? I mean, it's it's you 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 are encouraged to bundle and to pay less to bundle. They make it very easy to only use one provider. I, I guess consumer behavior might change a little bit now. Yeah, and and we also have to take into account it's easy for all of us to say have a backup plan or don't bundle or you know have a secondary service, but can the average consumer actually afford that? And you know that's one of those one of those questions. We pay a lot for telecommunications um, as a as a G as a G seven country in comparison to our our counterparts and. And it's 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 a big ask to tell people why don't you have two internet services or 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 two, or, or two phone lines right it's not it's not it's not practical so clearly there's something has failed here and we need to have those broader policy discussions on how do we make it more affordable um, how do we make sure connectivity is ubiquitous or and having these fail safes in place these are all things that we need to need to discuss because this is a lifeline like we're living in the digital economy, the social cyber digital economy. We're working from home. We're connected more than ever before. We use it to connect with our loved ones, but also uh, for commerce, small businesses, like everyone is connected. So this is essential that we get it right. Ritesh Kotak, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you so much for having me. As I mentioned, it was like something out of a thriller, a bad one at that. Uh, Rogers. The collapse of its network on on Friday, at least for a while. Uh, well, today uh, there was uh, there was questions to be answered. The federal industry minister held an emergency call with the CEOs of Rogers and other major Canadian telecom companies. Uh, Francois Philippe Champagne has given them sixty days to come up with a deal to improve uh, network reliability. Here is the minister. Everyone acknowledged this was unacceptable. Uh, that we need to work together for better quality and reliability. Um, and, and certainly that there is a willingness uh, to learn from each other. That's Francois-Philippe Champagne there. Of course, the big issue on Friday, and my next guest will get into this, is that uh, it just showed us how reliant we were on one company so that when they went down, you know, a lot of the country kind of ground to a halt. Not all of it. A lot of us had different service providers and it all worked, but so much was impact. You couldn't really go anywhere without seeing the impact of that of that outage uh, for here in Victoria it was the grocery store, the bank, it was everywhere. So maybe it's time 
to reboot the way we think about Canada's digital infrastructure in general, at least that according to an op-ed that my next guest has written for the Globe and Mail, Vas Bednar, is the Executive Director uh, of the Master of Public Policy and Digital Society Program at McMaster University in Hamilton, also a Senior Fellow at the Centre for International Governance Innovation. Thanks for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. Hi. It really did. Uh, you mentioned in that op-ed, you sort of harkened back to 2003 and the Great Blackout. I was in New York for the mm. Great Blackout, believe it or not. <laughs> believe it or not. Oh, wow. uh, so, it di- yeah, it did remind me of then because really you're like, oh, wow, everything just went out. Um, where did you see the parallels? It's an interesting comparison. I, I love thinking about the parallels in terms of how we were disconnected and things sort of halted and felt frozen And then people kind of came forward in interesting ways to connect with neighbors, eat ice cream or direct traffic. Um, But I also really appreciate the contrast because in 2003, that was actually five years before the App Store launched. And at the time, it was a big deal to even have a cell phone. And if you did have one, the super cool thing was a camera phone. That was like the big thing in 2003. So I like contrasting just because it reminds us that the role of the internet and cellular services in our lives has really fundamentally changed. And that's why I'm kind of part of the chorus of people calling for this rethink, or as you said, rebooting it. Yeah, because it does show, we are now as reliant on on our telecom infrastructure in some ways, as we were on electricity in 2003 and still are today. But it really did highlight just how vulnerable we are if something goes wrong. Absolutely. The vulnerability, but also the hyper-connectedness, as you pointed to, right? Friday was really a domino effect for the digital infrastructure that underpins our economy. So it wasn't just the pleasure of a impromptu personal digital detox or the angst of not being able to send or receive a text message to your crush. Um, this was about payment infrastructure and really the, the access to emergency services. So we are providing essential services over private infrastructure that the government uh, currently defines as basic. And that's not a diss to call something basic, which is sort of teen vernacular. Um, but we haven't quite, we haven't formally designated the internet as being essential in, in Canada. And yet, Friday really made it seem essential to me. What about Friday surprised you? I mean, you, you spent a lot of time looking into this. What about Friday surprised you the most? Hmm, I wasn't surprised that there was an outage per se. I mean, these are massive, complex systems, and I totally get that things happen. But I was surprised by the scale, the duration, and also the kind of spotty communication about the outage. Again, back to this feeling like an essential service. People didn't need corporate communication, sporadic corporate comms. People needed the facts as soon as possible. And I didn't really understand why we didn't use kind of a full core press, all the tools that we have. We have this incredible emergency alert system. I know you can't receive the emergency alert if your phone is bricked, but your peers can, your neighbors can. Um, My email was working because I'm with Bell, but my phone is with Rogers. I would have gladly received an emergency alert by email because I'm a Bell customer to say, listen, there's an outage. A lot of people are affected. We're getting more of the facts. In the meantime, here's what you need to know. We just didn't have the information that we needed, that we deserved. And I think the scariest part was the proportion of Canadians that were cut off from accessing emergency services from 911. We have to make sure that that never happens again. Yeah, that was a big surprise because my understanding, of course, is that that was never supposed to happen. 
Yeah, I sort of just <laughs> anticipated that too. I don't want to say it's kind of through osmosis or anything like that, but um, I was surprised that the emergency roaming aspect that the minister is now calling for and that we know companies are going to be working on uh, wasn't actually already in play. And just to explain that for a second, all that means is, you know, if Rogers is down, then your phone will automatically connect to Bell. It's kind of like how when you're roaming in the U.S., uh, just mentioning this because some people might be familiar with it, and you mentioned being in New York, um, your phone will automatically roam to the AT&T network or, or Verizon. So emergency roaming would see us have uh, established conditions for uh, what would happen domestically. Um, I think that's really promising. It's modest, right? Policy innovation doesn't have to be always revolutionary or reinventing the wheel. We can have incremental change that's actually super meaningful and makes a big difference for people. You did point out a fundamental problem earlier, though, is that when, it, when, when the rubber hit the road here, it was essentially left to Rogers to communicate what was going on, and they communicated as a company would, right? Uh, we're not going to tell you what we don't need to tell you, and we're not going to tell you what we don't know yet, right? That's sort of unlike a power company that sort of says, here's where it's out, here's what we're doing, crews are on the way, you know, it, it, you know, you're right, you pointed out a very distinct difference between how a utility communicates an outage versus how a company uh, communicates one. Right. And maybe we just needed to get a little utilitarian in that regard. Now, I understand that the company didn't want to kind of fear monger and that early on there might have been concerns about a cybersecurity attack. And in fact, though we know that's not the case, cybersecurity risks are all the more reason for Canada to kind of double down on a better emergency protocol for a future outage. Um, I'll be honest with you, I kind of feel bad for Rogers that they've come, become this uh, temporary punching bag for the country because to me, the issue, it's not quite about Rogers. I know it's a, they need to be accountable and they're owning this and they're kind of leading in that regard. But it could have been any one of the three telecommunications companies. I'm sort of, in my mind, calling it, uh, tell me if you think this, this is going to stick, Red Friday. <laughs> Just <laughs> like the outage and stuff like that. Again, I don't think it needs to be co-branded with Rogers. I think that um, in a lot of ways, the telecommunications convo in Canada is kind of, volcanic right it's always been kind of hot and brimming and frothy it's there and it's fiery and on friday it erupted so suddenly you see all over the news these old ideas new ideas old frustrations new frustrations that's i also i see is very productive and that's where the volcano uh, analogy completely falls down because i do think this is a great opportunity for canada to bounce back and be more proactive and more productive here I'm speaking with Vas Bednar this half hour, Executive Director in the Master of Public Policy and Digital Society Program at McMaster University. We're talking about what could lie ahead following Friday, what a better infrastructure, uh, digital infrastructure in this country could look like. And after the break, that's where we'll go. We'll talk about uh, some of your ideas that you brought up in that Globe Mail op-ed about what exactly a more uh, resilient and also uh, perhaps a more customer-friendly, in some senses, a utility, really, since it is, so we are also dependent on it, what that would look like. Uh, that's coming up. Vas Bednar is our guest this half hour. She's the executive director in the Masters of Public Policy and Digital Society program at McMaster in Hamilton, also a senior fellow at the Center for International Governance Innovation. We've been talking about what she's dubbed Red Friday. I think it'll stick. Not to single out <laughs> Rogers, but just a, 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 a reminder of just how connected we all are. And when one service provider, because there aren't that many in this country, when one goes down, it can create a huge amount of havoc as it did. Uh, 
We're also talking about an op-ed that Vass wrote for the Globe and Mail, talking about how it's time to rethink uh, how we look at our digital infrastructure. What would that look like? Because you've talked about it as a public good. There are some examples out there, I know, of, uh, of where it is, in fact, a public good. Uh, what would mm. that look like and how would it help? Well, we've got some examples in Canada already. The infamous Saskdell in Saskatchewan. We have a bunch of municipalities. They're actually playing around, experimenting with linking up their fiber optic network. So previously they weren't really a network, but t- turns out we have all this uh, fiber cable uh, with public transit, uh, water sewage treatment centers, uh, water, tr- water centers rather, and sewage. So uh, the city of Toronto is looking at the potential benefits of linking that up so that the, the facilities, the wires themselves will be publicly owned and then they would lease out space to private providers, ISPs. And that's a kind of more blended model that would more closely mirror what we see uh, mirror what we see in Australia, where they've kind of separated out facilities-based and and uh, service-based competition. We also have a situation, if you want to zoom out and go all the way to um, outer space, not to sound like a tech bro or anything, but, you know, we are using low-orbit satellites to complement connectivity efforts here in Canada. And that's a situation where we are, don't have our feathers kind of ruffled about a foreign-owned company kind of in the space. So, as we think more about how we can improve the system, I think it's important to remember that while there might be kind of lofty or, you know, bigger goals that seem more radical or revolutionary, actually we can be kind of taking an approach that's more like radical incrementalism, uh, modest incremental changes that uh, have this otherwise Frankensteinian system start to evolve and become a bit better. What would be a good first step then in that direction in Canada? Well, you know, there's a lot of talk about what all the companies have to do together and with the government, but I think we can also click refresh on what we'd like to see all orders of government do. I mentioned the municipal broadband efforts. I mentioned a provincial uh, example where there's a crown corporation, and then we're thinking about the federal government. Now, the federal government has a call out. They actually have a new proposed policy direction that's being proposed to the CRTC on telecom. Their goal is to improve prices and services in that regard. And that's something people can write into and demonstrate their support for and share feedback. So back to that kind of ongoing, almost zombie-like conversation, no disrespect to zombies, but we're kind of always talking about telecom competition in Canada, but we sort of talk about it as a joke, right? We're kind of resigned to the oligopolist tendencies of our country. We have that joke. It's not even that funny, but I'll repeat it for you, that Canada's just three telecom companies in a trench coat. Um, And I think what Red Friday showed us is that, you know, it was embarrassing. It was hurtful to the economy. It caused people to be unable to access emergency services. So I think we've got a really cool opportunity here that we shouldn't shy away from, right? We can't make this just about Rogers, which is why I'm kind of joking. We need a different name that doesn't just, not just, punitive to them. This is about Canada and the system we have and the system that we want. How do we close that gap? Because I think Friday was also about uh, expectations, managing expectations. And the reality seems that having uh, private companies that are fundamentally accountable to shareholders, not everyday Canadians, felt really frustrating and really annoying. 
It did. I, I, I think millions voiced that very sentiment on Friday. Uh, there's always mm-hmm. pushback, though, isn't there, when it comes to, to, I mean, this is an area that has been left in the hands of um, of just a few companies for quite a while now. Is Do you think mm-hmm. it's, it's too late to, to sort of put the genie back in the bottle, so to speak? I don't think it's too late. I mean, let's acknowledge the significant capital investments that these private companies have made to lay the groundwork for that physical infrastructure. Um, That physical infrastructure has tended towards a kind of natural monopoly, which is why you hear people calling for nationalization of the infrastructure that telcos have. Um, I know there's a, there's a school of thought or a camp that will sort of say, Oh, you know, that's, you're just, you know, you're holding a hammer and everything seems like a competition uh, issue to you. These are kind of older arguments or they kind of feel stale. And to me, it just feels like the window of opportunity cracked open for us to have a realistic kind of hashtag real talk conversation, again, about the system we have, which has evolved over time. It's kind of Frankensteinian. It's kind of weird. It's difficult to understand. Um, And to a system that we can continue to evolve and sculpt so that it better serves Canadians. And really top of mind, we haven't touched too much on this, is just making sure that no matter what, no Canadian is ever cut off from emergency services ever again. I think that's a pretty acceptable goal for us to work towards. Yeah, that's that would that would seem like a good place good place to start. Uh, just on the competition mm-hmm. front, I mean, you know, we, we are looking at yet another consolidation within the industry. Is is I mean, I know you mentioned in the op-ed that consol you didn't think competition was really the main problem here. That in fact, uh, what was needed is is for it to be treated more like a utility to some extent. Uh, but does the competition factor worry you at all? Uh, I mean, I'm always kind of stressed about the lack of dynamism and this economy writ large. So that's kind of a big question. I don't know how much time you have. Um, <laughs> Two minutes. The, okay. You know, so the lack of choice for Canadians certainly concerns me. One of the uh, potential interventions you saw people championing on Friday was, hey, you need to decouple or unbundle yourself. So make sure that your cell phone carrier is different than your home internet. It's not terrible advice, but what I don't like about it is that it puts the burden on the shoulders of everyday people. And everyday people are not going to be the ones who solve these deep, systemic kind of structural issues, again, with the system that we have, which is why I think we need to stick with this, zoom out, and keep these interesting, excellent, overdue conversations going. And also, you know, maybe double down and make the case for Canadians and remind them if the system that we have is so amazing and so incredible, which by my read, it's not. The prices are going up. There are low choices and switching costs are high. It's not uh, something I'm writing home, home about. But if we want to double down and, and reconvince ourselves that this is somehow stellar and amazing, then let's do that too, because I think people need to be reassured that we have an appropriate system in place, especially in this inflationary period, which is really stressful, really scary, and where people are more price sensitive than ever before. Yeah, Vas Bednar, thank you so much for your time tonight. A fascinating conversation. I look forward to catching up uh, when we see if this conversation continues in, say, six weeks, six months. Hopefully. Stay in touch. Well, we found out some interesting news last week. Online restaurant reservations, this is really no surprise, are growing in popularity with advanced table bookings overwhelmingly surpassing walk-ins in 2022. That's a huge shift since pre-pandemic when uh, 
Canadian restaurants saw a lot more walk-ins than reservations. I guess people are excited to go back. You want to know you're going to get in. There's been limited space over time, and you really want to make sure you're going to get the table that you want at the restaurant you want and not chancing it on walking in and not getting it. Uh, that's all according to data from Open Table. They're, of course, the world's largest online reservation platform. But the growing trend could also be hurting the restaurant industry, and here's why. Owners and industry experts warn the surge in online reservations has also led to more no-shows. Those are those unfortunate souls who book something and don't call to cancel, then don't show up. Which, of course, in a place where you don't make reservations a lot can be kind of understandable. In other countries, you just don't do it. In London, where I lived, you got charged. You had to leave a deposit when you made a reservation. If you didn't show up, they charged you for it. Not a huge amount but they did charge you for it. So that can be really detrimental to establishments when they, they're just starting to recover from the pandemic and they don't have, you know, they, every table needs to be booked, especially with costs going up and so forth. So with more on this, Matthew Davis is joining us. He's the country director for Open Table Canada and uh, that's the company that did this survey. So thanks for your time and interesting stuff. Thank you, Ben. It's a pleasure. So a critical summer for a lot of restaurants in Canada. We knew that going in as they try to recoup some of what was lost over the past few years. Your data suggests that Canadians are indeed eating out again. They certainly are in, in record-breaking numbers. The surge in demand that we've seen for restaurants and dining out has been incredible. It, it began at the beginning of the reopening that we saw at the start of the year and has just sustained. And now, of course, in the summer, it is peak season, which is typically the case at this time of year, but this year more than ever, it's just, it's, it's bonkers out there. Did you see that as sort of a, you know, like a spike? Did it sort of stay quite consistent in those early months over the winter that all of a sudden jump up? We definitely see a spike and that's, that's typical actually, even pre-pandemic that as, uh, as the summer months come on, this is really peak season for dining in Canada. And so, uh, we definitely saw that spike. It was just more pronounced this year, of course, given the surge that we saw. And I gather that Canadians, there has been a bit of a sea change, not a complete one, but a tiny bit of a, a sea change in the way that Canadians plan their dining out experiences uh, now. There has. And as you say, Ben, it's, a, it's been something that's slightly changed over time, but the pandemic has really accelerated that, that behavior, I find. And so, what we see as the world's largest online reservation platform, we have a privileged position to see a lot of data and trends at a high level. We see that online reservations or pre-planning the reservation via online channels, be that our app or other online methods, whether it be the website of the restaurant, uh, has really surged and uh, incredibly so actually. So my hypothesis is that as we all know, no, during the pandemic, we all became more familiar with technology, more so than we were previously. That uh, accelerated. And so that coupled with the need in many cases to make reservations because of uh, health orders or restrictions or literally a mandate in many provinces to have a reservation has meant that more and more people are now becoming familiar with the process of making online reservations. And they also, I think, would like like the security of having and knowing where they're going and knowing that where they're going is going to be safe, sanitary, et cetera. So it's kind of all of these things combined together that the pandemic threw up have just accelerated the trends we're seeing pre-pandemic. 
Now, one of the things that I know a lot of people do, I've done it occasionally myself, I always try to be a good customer and, and cancel way in advance is, if, is you book a few things at the same time and then make your decision a little bit later. But I suppose that sort of uh, quote unquote antisocial behavior might be, mightn't be appreciated by restaurant owners if you in fact don't show. I guess that's one of the downsides of, uh, of people starting to make reservations when we're not really a culture that's used to making a lot of reservations for eating out, uh, not, not unless it was special occasions. You're exactly right. And what we call that in the industry is no-shows. And no-shows are super damaging for restaurants. And it's so much so that it's really, it's, it's bad for the industry overall. I think the dining public isn't fully aware of why that's the case. But in this moment, which is a critical period of recovery, given it's the first full summer that restaurants have full capacity to fill in, in Canada, uh, it's even a more pronounced issue because the value of those tables, the value of each seat in that restaurant is ever more critical given that they are recovering from that period of closure and loss. And so what we always try and educate people about at Open Table is even if it's a couple of hours before a reservation, you, the best thing you can do to be a good dining citizen is give them a call to let them know you're, you're not coming. At Open Table, we've created tools so you can do that easily via the app. Uh, and in fact, it's such a big issue for restaurants that on open table, for example, you cannot make multiple reservations in a period of time because it's, again, it's just so bad for restaurants. Now, as you said, that doesn't prevent people from making them via multiple websites or through other platforms or even multiple phone calls. Uh, I guess the thing that we try and educate people about is, I guess that's okay when you're in the planning phase, but as soon as you can, let the restaurant know if you're coming or not so that they can plan and serve the guests accordingly. Because you obviously don't want restaurants. One of the things that I was reading in an article that you did an interview for as well recently was that, you know, restaurants calling their customers in advance or try chasing them down essentially. And certainly one would imagine these days, restaurants just don't have the capacity to be chasing their customers around. You're exactly right. There's an enormous labour shortage, as we all know, facing the Canadian economy in many sectors, and it's it's pronounced in the restaurant industry also. And so that's another reason why the technology adoption has increased over time. It makes things smoother, easier, more efficient for those who are left to staff the restaurants to do so. Uh, but they can't, as they may have in the past, spend as much time chasing diners down so it's just really important that the diner uh, does their part in showing up for the restaurant and letting them know if they can't come. It really can mean the difference uh, of, of making or breaking even on, this, on a shift for an evening in a restaurant. And that's really the whole idea is Canadians have done a, such a great job of supporting restaurants through the pandemic, through takeout delivery, really being there for their community landmarks that restaurants often are. And now it's, it's just ever more important to remember that that's still a period and uh, a behaviour we need to see adopted through this really just a good Canadian dining citizen thing to do, which is just to let them know. One of the things that I encountered living abroad, London specifically, but you're right, New York as well, is that if you do reserve, you're often asked for a credit card. And if you don't show, you get charged. There's depends on the restaurant, but there are, there are penalties if you don't turn up, uh, even if your table is taken by somebody else. Um, do you see something like that happening here? It, it certainly, it certainly, I found it, it certainly encourages people to, to plan carefully. We do see that. And I don't have hard data on this actually actual topic in Canada, but anecdotally, we do see it increasing 
very much across uh, specific parts of the country, like in Vancouver or in Toronto, for example. It's been commonplace, as you said, in cities like London, New York, where the demand is so high for these great restaurants that really what they are doing is having or putting a little more skin in the game on the diner's side. The, the restaurants in Canada really, uh, I think, are in conflict about this, and I don't blame them. It's For restaurants in Canada, we're very hospitality-focused, and certainly when I was managing restaurants, uh, the feeling of dinging a customer who wasn't able to make a reservation felt very contrary to the <laughs> philosophy behind why I was in the business. However, as you know, in many other spaces and industries, for example, if I don't show up for my gym class, I am paying the fee that I am, was going to pay for that class if I don't show up. Restaurants are sort of the last frontier in Canada for that kind of uh process and i think we're going to see more of it as the as the issue escalates and really just the whole idea is to incentivize that customer that diner to call and let them know that they're not showing up rather than charging them if they don't come i mean you make a good point if you buy a ticket to go see a movie they don't show your seat stays empty but uh, but you still pay for the movie right uh, i guess there is a delicate balance there between trying to encourage customers not to no-show versus, as you put it, dinging it. I mean, this has always been a very uh, diner-friendly system that we have for restaurants here. Uh, But one would imagine if if it's abused, then then there are measures to take. I I remember in London, it wasn't, you didn't get charged a fortune, but it was, you know, 25 pounds if you didn't show for your uh, your reservation, which uh, which seemed fair at the time, to be honest. Yeah, and it's a nom- you're exactly right. It's a very nominal fee, largely, that restaurants put in place. Again, it's really just an incentive designed to ensure you call. I, I would hazard a guess that having had that fee charged once for not showing, you're probably less likely to do it again. <laughs> and so the behaviour shift is what restaurants and the industry at large, I think, is really looking to encourage because it never feels good for a restaurant person or manager or hospitality industry representative to make... Uh, that fee and charge that to the diner because as we all know life is busy like you may not you may have a very valid reason for not showing up so it's really just more about education like calling is always better you may feel like you're putting them out if you're calling even an hour before because they're probably busy in service but it's way better to let them know than not show given that in many cases they're turning away walk-ins that are at the front door coming, wanting a table, but they're holding that table for you. And so by the time you don't show up, those walk-ins have essentially gone and they couldn't recoup that loss. Yeah, I should be clear. If you called in advance and canceled your table, you didn't get charged as long as they knew that you weren't coming. I think there was a time limit. Uh, Last question for you. Walk-ins are still a really important part of the business, though. Uh, I mean, it's still important, I think, for restaurants to be able to accommodate walk-ins as well. And you mentioned that, too, in some of your data. Absolutely. And walk-ins are a really healthy part of the business and a very huge component of the data and the traffic we see during the summer months in Canada. However, during the pandemic, they virtually disappeared because of those mandates, as I said, and the restricted capacity restaurants had. So they would fully book their restaurants with reservations. So now that summer's back, everyone's in full swing and hopefully the pandemic is behind us, that I want to really just send a message it's great to get out there and just try and be a bit more spontaneous in your dining decisions. Go and walk down the street with your partner and 
pop your head into a restaurant and see if you can get a table. Those walk-ins are really critical for restaurants, as we said, to recoup the uh, the loss of any no-shows or last-minute cancellations. And so I think the spontaneity that we had pre-pandemic, everyone's eager and excited to get back out there and enjoy life again. So just keep dining on and, and walk-ins will contribute to the recovery for restaurants. And even if it looks busy, you never know if someone has just called to cancel a reservation they had coming up. Matthew Davis, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure, Ben. Thank you so much. Let's go back to the war in Ukraine now, though. Again, it's been nearly five months since Russia invaded its neighbor. And the reaction of the West was unlike any seen before. Sanctions on companies and individuals really an attempt to isolate and punish Russia for its illegal war, the countless human rights violations, the attacks on civilians. And in the early days, there were lots of predictions that this would end very badly for Vladimir Putin. Some that said that he would, but that this would end badly for Vladimir Putin and quickly. Instead, Russia appears to be limping along, making some gains in eastern Ukraine after that disastrous start to the war, managing to avoid complete isolation thanks to support from non-Western allies such as China and Iran and others. And a complete crackdown on dissent inside the country is also keeping a lid on any public signs of discontent. Well, for a better understanding of what's going on in Russia, joining me now is Ian Garner. He's an expert on Russian war propaganda. He's also the author of Stalingrad Lives, Stories of Combat and Survival. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. There's been so much interest of late in just what is going on inside Russia. We're well past four months now into this war. Uh, The sanctions were meant to punish and weaken the country, weaken resolve. But as far as one can tell, it hasn't really happened yet. What is the mood inside Russia uh, vis-a-vis the war right now? Well, the government, ever since the sanctions were introduced, has continually told the population that if you just wait until May, wait until July, wait until August, whenever it is, the date keeps moving forward, all of this will blow over. They're trumpeting the strength of the ruble, which is something they've propped up using the large foreign currency reserves the government has. And they're basically saying there's nothing to worry about. And people on the whole seem to be believing that. They seem to be doing a really good job. I mean, good, of course, being a questionable word choice, but they're certainly doing an effective job of that. So the mood the mood seems to be good. The resolve is strong. And those stories that we're seeing about Russian troop losses don't seem to be cutting through to audiences in Russia. Which is, raises an interesting point, because if, uh, if, if they've made it through this early stage of, of the war in Ukraine, or at least the ongoing war in Ukraine, but if they've made it through this initial, um, call it crunch time, of those sanctions being imposed, one would expect that perhaps they'll be able to carry on. We don't hear much about talk of Putin being ousted anymore these days. No, well, all, all of that talk seems to be gone altogether. People seem to have rallied behind Putin. Those who are against the war have fallen quiet. The initial protests we saw in the first few days of the war fizzled out very quickly. The new laws that the government introduced about the, the spreading fake news about the Russian army, and of course, fake would be something that the Russian government would decide what was true and what was fake. Those laws have been really, really effective in silencing dissent and people, my contacts in Russia, have been, I would say, more afraid to talk, even through encrypted software, encrypted messaging, than they ever have been before. People always feel that the government is breathing down their shoulders and watching what they're doing. 
And of course, there is a substantial part of the population that always welcomed this and are thanking Putin for realizing an imperial dream they have of bringing Ukraine back into the Russian fold. You've talked about this a lot in your writing, uh, that this to understand Russia's present, you have to look at Russia's past, or at least how Vladimir Putin has reconstructed to some extent the story of Russia's past, uh, heading back to Stalingrad, of course, in the Second World War. But how has that fallen into this? How does that whole narrative play out? And how is it being used to to continue to build or at least maintain support for this war in Russia? Well, if we tell the story, and you've got to bear with me here because this is pretty bonkers and it's pretty detached from reality. Throughout history, Russia has been supposedly this sort of messianic force that has saved its neighbours, that has saved Orthodox Christianity time and time again from threats from the outside. And in World War II, it made the greatest sacrifice of all time. And this, this is true, I would, I would argue. 25 million Soviets died, a million at Stalingrad alone, in order to save the world from the Nazi threat. And of course, we can haggle over to what extent was it the Soviet Union or the states or the allies, but there is an element of truth in that. And what the government has done then over the last 15 to 20 years is really effectively create what we call in the scholarly world, a cult of the Second World War, in which it's the responsibility of ordinary citizens to kind of relive this sacrifice and go through this martyrdom again. So by painting, as they have done the Ukrainians today as Nazis, and there's really no truth in this whatsoever, despite what you may have read on the internet and some of the rumours that go around social media, What they do is suggest that once again, it's going to be Russia's responsibility to save the world from a fascist threat. And that's really firing up a generation of Russians who've been brought up with this stuff, who've learned these stories of their ancestors, who've learned to be kind of part of this cult from quite a young age and are now going off to the front and seeing their husbands and sons going off to the front and welcoming this with open arms because they see this as this sort of historically fated mission that Russia has. One thing I've always found interesting about Russian propaganda is, like all good propaganda, I guess, is how repetitive it is, how much this story is told again and again and again, and through force of repetition uh, becomes gospel to some extent, if you can forgive forgive the use of that word. One of the interesting things that we saw in this war was that in the first few days, the propaganda organs were just as underprepared as the military was and were caught on the back foot by the inability of the military to execute a very quick victory. And they really cast around. They were really struggling for the first week and they tried all sorts of different stories for a week or two, maybe three. And then they settled down on a few key ideas. And that is Zelensky is a Nazi, the Ukrainians are full of Nazis, and Ukraine is controlled by America. And these are old stories, right? These are stories that go back decades and even hundreds of years. Russians were being told stories that foreign powers were controlled by Europeans. And then day after day after day, they just repeat the same old things. And we see that around, in in particular, the atrocities that the Russians are committing in Butcher, the idea that this was a fake, it was a provocation, that actually the Ukrainians did it, they were prompted by the British or the Americans, 
They did it again last week with the attack on the shopping center in Kremenchuk. And they did it again, almost word for word, with an attack on an apartment building in Odessa the weekend. Is it sustainable? Depressingly, and this is not the news that we would want to hear, but I think in the short to medium term, yes. I think the center point of this myth of sacrifice around the war, and this is what I explore in the book around Stalingrad, is the idea that sacrifice isn't something just to be endured. The death of sons and fathers is something that has to be experienced. This is at the center of the religion, as it were, that the sacrifice is essential so that the the country, the culture can be kind of born anew. And as I warned you, this is pretty out there stuff. It doesn't make much sense when you're on the outside of this. But when you're on the inside and you're hearing about those losses, you embrace them. You see them as a part of your belief system. Of course, they're deeply upsetting. But I think Russians will be prepared to tolerate quite a lot more loss than we maybe are giving them credit for. I'm speaking with Ian Garner. He's an expert on Russian war propaganda, the author of Stalingrad Lives or Stalingrad Lives, Stories of Combat and Survival. We're talking about what's happening within Russia four months into this war, how support for the war is still strong, how laws passed uh, to quell dissent have been incredibly effective, how the propaganda machine has found its feet in Russia in telling its story about the uh, the purpose and usefulness of this war to its own people. When we come back, uh, Ian's raised an interesting point about how to engage with Russians who uh, who are fully committed to this narrative uh, and, and to try and at least sell tell them a story built on construction, not destruction, as you point out, as well as recognize the faith that exists there. We'll be back with that. My guest is Ian Garner. He's an expert on Russian war propaganda and author of Stalingrad Lives, Stories of Combat and Survival. We've been talking about uh, just what's going on in Russia. We're more than four months into the war in Ukraine. All the sanctions put into place that were meant to punish and at least force Russia to retreat on uh, retreat under a wave of discontent within the country has not really happened as far as we can tell. Protests have stopped near as we can tell. Um you know, how, how then do you, where where to from here then? It begs the question. Well, this is the trillion ruble question, isn't it? And it is extremely hard to answer. And I can't answer the question, but what I can do is give you a sense of what some of the experts are thinking. Now, if you talk to folks in the Baltic states, who are being threatened by Russia currently rhetorically, even though Russia is actually drawing troops away from the Baltics and away from Finland and Sweden to send to Ukraine because they're taking such heavy losses. Many people from those countries would argue that we've given Russia enough chances. We have tried to engage. We have tried since the fall of the Soviet Union, especially in the first 10 years or so of Putin's rule, to have them at the European table, to allow them to be civilized and decent people, but they've shown themselves incapable of being or embodying the values that we would expect of them. And therefore, the only option is essentially to ring the country off, isolate it economically and diplomatically, to rearm the borders with Russia. And we're seeing some of that with the Finland and Sweden joining NATO. NATO. And then as one 
Estonian politician recently told me in an interview, let them have at it. Just let them go crazy. Let them fix it by themselves. And when they're ready, they can come back. Others might argue, and I know there is some work being attempted within Russia, although it's extremely difficult right now, that we need to engage with people like Russian influencers because the Russian social media spaces are still, they are watched by the government, but they are relatively free. And there are a lot of influential young people, artists, you know, performers, musicians, sports people, who if we can engage with them and ask them to start spreading more positive messages might turn the younger generation in particular away from this behavior. And then there are those, and I think I, I would count myself amongst them, who are really flummoxed by this. And are really, even though we're professional Russia watchers, if you can term ourselves that, are really genuinely surprised by the extent of the atrocities that Russia has committed over the last few months. And it is extremely hard talking to my contacts in Russia and outside of Russia to see a path forward when institutionally Russia is so unready to move forward. And psychologically, I think a large chunk of its population is either indifferent to the suffering that it's causing in Ukraine or is actually embracing and encouraging that suffering. None of this sounds like it will bring an end to the war in Ukraine anytime soon, especially with the refocus on the Donbass on the east, uh, where traditionally there was already a very um, put-in-place argument for why those areas should be Russian. Well, in, indeed. And I think the argument for why those places should be Russian is very tenuous, as it was with Crimea. And certainly the Crimean annexation should have been conducted in a way very different to how it was done. And the referendum that is often cited as evidence that many people in Crimea wish to join Russia was carried out in a just wildly undemocratic and irresponsible way. There is, there's really no argument around that. But what we are going to find is that this war is going to go on for a long time in some way or another, whether it's Russia seizing those territories and Ukrainians committing or beginning a kind of a guerrilla war in those territories. We're going to see suffering continue as the children and other civilians that have been taken by force by Russia from those areas and deported to Russia as they figure out who they are and where they're going. And what we are going to see is that Ukraine itself, whatever remains of it, is going to be more aggressively anti-Russian than it probably ever has been in its history. And so if we're going to ask to what extent has Putin achieved his goals or can achieve his goals, well, he's made his goals unachievable by staging the invasion because he's united Ukraine against him in a way that would have been unthinkable uh, even a few months ago. And yet it seems he won't pay any consequences, at least not in the near term, for that miscalculation. No, no. And it's, it's one of the frustrating things morally about war, isn't it? That the bad guys can win and the bad guys sometimes do win. And it seems that his hold on power is very secure within the country 
and we're more likely to see him die in power or choose to step down from power than be ousted, at least in the near future. Ian Garner, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. Well, speaking of um, videos... (laughs) Tonight, a very angry video from the president of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky, venting his anger at Canada, of all places, after we announced that we will return repaired equipment to Germany used by Russian energy giant Gazprom to deliver natural gas to that country via the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. The turbines had been sitting in Montreal, the return blocked by sanctions against Russia following the invasion of Ukraine, but following pressure from Germany and with the support of the U.S., it should be said, Ottawa has issued a time-limited and revocable permit to exempt it from sanctions on Russia's oil and gas industry. So back they go, apparently. Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson says the decision was necessary to ensure Europe has immediate access to reliable, affordable energy. Canada's Natural Resources Minister said it would grant a time-limited permit to allow the return of the repaired turbines to Germany. Jonathan Wilkinson said the delivery was necessary to support Europe's transition away from Russian oil and gas and to protect Germany from any potential cutoffs. But the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress accused Ottawa of falling for Russian threats. Some Conservative MPs also blasted the decision for undermining the sanctions Canada has imposed on Russia over its invasion of Ukraine. Stephanie Taylor, The Canadian Press, Ottawa. Since then, uh, Ukraine, the Foreign Affairs, Foreign Affairs Office there, has called our ambassador in in Kyiv for an explanation. Quote, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs had to summon um, Canada's representative to our country due to an absolutely unacceptable exception to the sanctions regime against Russia, they said. The decision, was the, the, decision the exception to sanctions, will be perceived in Moscow exclusively as a manifestation of weakness, they went on to say. Well, given how Russia is using a spike in energy prices to profit uh, to, and profits to fuel its war effort, obviously Zelensky is calling this a dangerous president. He says because every concession in such conditions, again, is perceived by the Russian leadership as an incentive for further stronger pressure. Well, to look into all of this, joining me now again is Christian Luprecht. He's a professor at the Royal Military College in Kingston and at Queen's University there as well and a senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for your time. Good evening, Ben. Pleasure. So this is quite, I mean, it, it would have been hard to predict you know, a few months ago that we would have a video from uh, Vladimir Zelensky essentially blasting Canada for this decision. What's behind all this and where's all the anger coming from? Because uh, it seems like a fairly straightforward commercial decision, but obviously not. Yeah. Uh, so, look, I empathize here, of course, with the Ukrainians, but I think the geopolitics behind that criticism is profoundly misguided not returning this particular turbine would have meant that there's a serious risk that the Russians might shut off gas supplies altogether. So on July 12th, the Nord Stream 1 pipeline goes into its annual maintenance, so it remains shut off for 10 days, and there's a considerable concern that if the turbine had not been returned, the Russians would use it as an excuse not to have any gas flowing. The result of that would be is that it would stoke a profound economic and political crisis, not just in Germany, but across the European Union. And Germany being the largest and most important uh, continental anchor country, not just for Canada, but in terms of the continental Europe, in terms of the relationship with Ukraine and defense of Ukraine, um, anything that causes uh, instability, economic, political, otherwise 
within Germany or in the European Union uh, cannot possibly be in the interest of either Canada uh, or of Ukraine. And so I think ultimately here, uh, this was, um, I think this, this is a, a decision that was uh, the right decision to make and the right political compromise for the Canadian government to make because the Canadian government worded its uh, sanctions uh, policy in this particular regard in a somewhat unfortunate manner because returning the turbine to Germany means that the turbine does not actually fall under the European Union sanctions regime with Russia. So it is actually under the European Union sanctions regime legitimate for Germany to return that turbine uh, to Russia. So I find sort of some of the criticisms rather uh, myopic and ill-formed in terms of the broader grand strategy, which ultimately has to be to uh, contain and hopefully defeat Russia in its invasion. Because we just happened to be fixing it here, right? It didn't belong to Canada as such. It was, it still, it still bears to do with as they please, I would assume. Yeah, so, I mean, there are obviously serious reper- potential repercussions for foreign direct investment in Canada if foreign partners could no longer count on their uh, contractual obligations in terms of their relationships to have equipment sent to Canada. Um, and I find it somewhat ironic that it took the Canadian government weeks to issue this time-limited export permit for this one particular turbine and as a result effectively um, at the cost of taking uh, Germany and the European Union quasi hostage in the shuffle over uh, Russian gas deliveries while at the same time the Canadian government makes all sorts of performative announcements about imposing sanctions on Russian assets in Canada but it doesn't actually have the legislation or the enforcement capacity to make good on those sanctions. And we know this because, of course, in British Columbia, the Cowan Commission on Money Laundering in British Columbia that reported last month laid bare just how unprepared and vulnerable the Canadian system is uh, to global financial crime. And we know that there are substantial Russian assets, for instance, in the Toronto real estate market. So I find it uh, somewhat duplicitous that the Canadian government would decide to take its most important continental ally, quasi-hostage, over this turbine, while itself is not prepared to actually pass the legislation and stand up the intelligence and enforcement mechanisms that actually could make good uh, on the sanctions that it claims to impose but has no ability to actually enforce. Um, Vladimir Zelensky knows what's going on here. He knows that Germany's not ready to move itself off Russian gas just yet, that there are certainly seem to be uh, concerted efforts to move away from Russian energy, but they're not there. So what do you, what diplomatic game do you think Ukraine is playing here? Because to blast an ally, certainly a supporting ally, uh, so, so vocally, uh, there must be something going on behind the scenes here. There must be more to this than just a turbine. Yeah, there definitely is. So this has long been a difficult relationship, in particular also personally, between President Zelensky uh, and the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. Uh, Germany finds itself in a difficult position in a three-party coalition where all three parties have a rather different view of how exactly Russia uh, should be uh, dealt with in this particular fashion. Uh, Within his own party, Olaf Scholz uh, has quite a few sympathizers with the Russian cause. 
So he has considerable challenge within his own ranks trying to keep his people uh, together. And that also explains why Germany has been uh, somewhat tepid in its own announcements about providing military assistance in particular uh, to Ukraine, even though, like Canada, Germany has uh, ample high technology that it could be delivering, but it has been rather slow out of the starting blocks. And then there have been uh, unfortunate missteps on both sides in terms of uh, visits, in particular by the Chancellor to uh, to Kiev, where essentially Zelensky uninvited the German Chancellor. So certainly there's, I think, a sense, uh, at least by President Zelensky, uh, that Olaf Scholz has not been a good Boy Scout. At the same time, I think uh, there is a bit of an underappreciation, perhaps, in Kiev of the challenges of domestic politics within Germany. And then Germany, of course, also is, a, is perhaps the key broker uh, within continental Europe and the European Union um, on the sanctions regime. And I mean, let's remember. Uh, we can't apologize for some terrible decisions that Germany has made in terms of its gas dependency. I think we can somewhat honor the fact that Germany has seen the light here, and I mean, in a matter of months, has reduced its gas dependency from Russia from 55% to 35%. But that's still an immense dependency. And if Russia were to continue to throttle gas deliveries or stop them altogether, uh, the chemical industry in Germany alone consumes about 15% of those gas imports. It would effectively be forced to shut down. And this would have serious ramifications uh, even for Canada in terms of chemical products, in terms of pharmaceuticals and the like that are produced uh, by that industry. And so uh, Canada, rather than um, playing politics over a turbine, would be much better served if we actually had an honest conversation about the desperate need for Canada to stand up and provide energy security and energy resilience uh, to continental Europe in general and to countries such as Germany and Italy um, in particular. Uh, but of course, the Prime Minister has been, uh, shall we say, rather reticent, if we put this uh, charitably, about having any conversation about pipelines and liquid natural gas terminals. And Olaf Scholz is even flying to Canada on the 22nd and 23rd of August, uh, going to Montreal and the East Coast, that is to say the places where there's considerable resistance uh, to LNG and to pipelines in the hopes of uh, changing hearts and minds. It's certainly become a, become a hot topic uh, all of a sudden, thanks to a turbine. Christian Luprecht is my guest this half hour. He's a professor at the Royal Military College at Queen's University in Kingston. When we come back, we'll talk a bit more just about what the damage could be to Canada's reputation here. Because, of course, you know, Vladimir Zelensky uh, attracts a huge audience. The criticisms within Canada from the uh, Ukrainian-Canadian Congress have been quite vociferous as well. So we'll see what kind of uh, long-term damage this might do to Canada's reputation in this war effort in Ukraine after this. It's always a pleasure to have Christian Luprecht on the show. He's a professor at the Royal Military College and at Queen's University in Kingston. We're talking about Canada's decision to return a uh, turbine to Germany, ostensibly to Gazprom, which is essentially returning it to Russia. Now, as uh, Christian pointed out, there's maintenance going on in this, on this crucial pipeline uh, that sends a, most of what uh, Germany gets in terms of natural gas from Russia, which is a lot. Um, but it has caused, uh, and they need the turbine back, and they want it back. The Americans support it, supported it today. But it's caused a lot of consternation because really uh, what Ukraine is saying and Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky was um, released a video tonight, which was all about Canada's decision to do this, essentially saying uh, if you give 
Vladimir Putin, if you look to be surrendering to him on this one, it's just going to be perceived as weakness and he'll just keep on pushing. What do you make of that argument, uh, Christian? Because it is it is compelling to some extent, but there, there's a whole bunch of dynamics at play here in terms of where Germany's at in its dependence on Russian energy, which, as you said, you can look back and accuse them of having been irresponsible on that front, but they're not going to wean themselves off it overnight. Yeah, and I think there's some frustration by the Ukrainians with Canada more broadly when it comes to Canada's support. Look, at the NATO summit, for instance, uh, allies announced some 500 artillery systems, 600 tanks, and hundreds of thousands of rounds of ammunition. What did Canada announce? A center of excellence for climate security and support to co-host the new innovation, uh, NATO Innovation Fund. Um, So I think there's sort of some sense by Ukraine that Canada could and should be doing a lot more. Uh, Canada has lots of equipment capability, even within this country, uh, that we could be providing to Ukraine. Um, Canada, of course, could have had the foresight that it had when it originally uh, supported um, the advise and assist the training mission effectively to Ukraine in 2014 with the United Kingdom and the United States. Um, And when the evasion came, unfortunately, Canada, with benign neglect of its armed forces, had, as we all know, uh, really not a whole lot more to uh, provide and to support. And so I think there's uh, now Canada is a significant financial backer of uh, of Ukraine, but still in the grand scheme of things, quite modest uh, compared to the top three uh, backers. And so in that sense, I think there's a sense by Ukraine that uh, Canada is uh, not uh, doing enough, uh, is not even doing what Canada could and should be doing. Um, and uh, that Canada doesn't really perhaps understand its geostrategic interests in terms of the ultimate outcomes in Ukraine. And so I think there's a perception um, that is increasingly widespread that the announcements that Canada makes, both with regards to Ukraine and Russian sanctions and so forth, are largely performative for a domestic Canadian audience and the uh, Ukrainian domestic audience in particular constituency, rather than uh, announcements that are closely coordinated with allies and that are genuinely meant to support uh, Ukraine in its fight and that ultimately are also Uh, should be designed to ensure that Ukraine can actually not just defend itself, but ultimately defeat Russia. So you can see in that context how the Ukrainian president uh, is, uh, how this, this decision could have rubbed him the wrong way. Yeah, so this was sort of, it feels like it was just badly communicated um, in many ways, as as is often the case. And in this case, yeah, I, I, I would imagine that, that there's more going on here with, with, with Vladimir Zelensky as well. Is there any chance at this point that this decision is reversed, that the turbine stays in Montreal if the, uh, you know, the federal government's been known to change its mind at times? Uh, is there any, any chance here that this is reversed or with the American support and certainly with Germany's uh, request that this is a done deal? Well, I think the fact that the United States, the Biden administration, explicitly supported Canada after Canada came out and made its decision, I think, reinforces the fact and clearly stresses to Canada that Canada uh, made the extremely wrong call not to issue this export permit in the first place and to even turn this uh, into having any, any sort of debate on this topic to begin with. And so uh, it would be, I think, disastrous now 
um, for the Kenyan government to reverse course because it was already, in terms of geostrategic and geopolitical consequences, um, uh, to the contrary, Putin now understands that Canada is the weak link here, that the Canadian government can be influenced. And we know, for instance, that Putin has already manipulated Canadian public opinion. We know, for instance, that there's been uh, efforts by Russia to amplify for instance, misinformation when it comes to Canadian hydrocarbons, to Canadian oil and gas, for instance. Um, and right. so Russia will certainly capitalize on this decision in order to divide the Canadian public, uh, the Canadian public further. Uh, something that Russia uh, has learned to do quite well. And we saw that uh, this country is highly susceptible uh, to foreign influence uh, during the Ottawa occupation. Christian Luprecht, thank you so much for your time tonight. Always appreciate it. It's been my pleasure, Ben. Thank you. Have a good evening.